God save our gracious king. Long live our noble king. God save the king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious. Long to reign over us. God save the king. Some of you are more familiar with that song than others, especially if you're a Canadian citizen. I know Pastor John's not here, but I know he would give a hearty amen to that song. It's the national anthem of the United Kingdom. And interestingly, um, when the Queen died on September 8th, 2022, that very night, although for 60 years the entire country and some punk rock bands had been singing God Save the Queen, all the people spontaneously broke out in God Save the King. It's a part of their culture. Just like it's a part of almost every culture of every nation that's existed on this earth. As Americans, we don't really like the idea of a king. I'm from Massachusetts, so when I think about kings, I think about King George, and I want to, like, dump the tea in the Boston Harbor, you know. Pretty anti-king around here. But the Bible talks a lot about kings, The Bible is always talking about different kings and kingdoms. And from the very beginning of the scriptures, there's hints that there is going to be a king who will one day reign over all. And we've been singing about that this morning. We've been singing about Jesus as our king. We hear a lot about Jesus as our savior and our comforter and our friend and our priest, and we should. But Jesus is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And as I was considering what to preach on this morning and what to talk about, that idea of Jesus as king kept coming up because I think that all of us as believers, myself probably foremost of all, we have a tendency to get discouraged when we look at the world around us. We see in this country decay and decline. We see that this country attacks the things that made us once a great nation like the family, gender, marriage, This country is going downhill, and especially for some of you who are older than me, it's even harder because you witnessed, I guess, the glory days in a sense. But that's why I chose this passage, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. It's a parable about the kingdom of God, and it is so encouraging because it lifts our eyes from the wind and the waves like Peter and fixes them squarely on the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's doing. Matthew chapter 13. And as, you tur- as you're turning there, let me catch you up in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is all about Jesus as the king. Different gospels emphasize different things about Jesus, John, maybe his deity, Mark, maybe his humanity. But Matthew is all about Jesus as a king. Matthew chapter 1 starts off with the king's credentials, his genealogy. You know, we skip through those, and some of you are probably still discouraged that you didn't read the whole Bible because you skipped all the genealogies last month. But the genealogies are important because they establish the credentials for Jesus. And he's a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. David was promised by God that he would have a descendant who would reign over all the nations. 
In the beginning of Matthew 1, it says that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see the credentials of King Jesus in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we immediately see a rival king, Herod. What does he want to do? He wants to destroy this king who has better credentials than him. He goes to Bethlehem and says, kill every baby born under two years old. I've got to get rid of this rival king. And of course, Jesus escapes. And then chapters 3, we see the herald of the kingdom. John the Baptist goes out and says, the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. It's close. The king is coming. He's almost here. Chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. And what is one of the things that Satan tempts Jesus to do? He says, bow down to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. The temptation of Jesus, one of the temptations was for him to become king in a way that God had not planned. To not go through the suffering, to not go through the cross, but to try to get the kingdom now. But this king, he resists Satan. He defeats Satan. And then chapters 5 through 7, we see the manifesto of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, here's going to be the new rules of the kingdom. Chapters 8 through 11, we see miracles and the power of the kingdom. Chapter 12, we see Jesus is the king and Lord even over the Sabbath, even over all those Jewish laws and regulations. And finally, that brings us to chapter 13, we see that the way Jesus explains things and starts to talk about the kingdom is he begins to use parables. Chapter 13, he begins, he uses the parable of the sower. And then he says in verse 11, the reason that he speaks in parables. The disciples ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus explains why does he use parables. He uses parables not just to help us understand, but partly to mask the truth from those who don't believe, from those who aren't spiritually minded. He's using these figures of speech so that he can specifically address those people who are believing in him. And so he tells the parable of the sower. You, you all know that familiar story. You know, a sower goes out to sow, and it goes on different soils. People respond differently to the king. But that brings us to our passage today, verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What is the kingdom of God like? What does it look like? We might if we were thinking in the category of plants, we think maybe like a cedar or a redwood tree. But what does Jesus say? It's like a mustard seed. It's something small. In fact, it's something 
smaller than any seeds of the earth. And some people who want to attack the Bible say, why didn't Jesus say, you know, this is in the 120th percentile of all seeds. Technically, there's a seed in Africa that's smaller. Jesus is not talking about that. He's using this as a figure of speech like a pinhead. It's the smallest thing that we use. It's as small as a pinhead. But the idea is the kingdom seems small. It seems insignificant. But then what? It grows and it's larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree. Here's the main point. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but it will dominate everything in the end. It's a simple message. It's not complicated. This is the main point of today's message. I have one main point. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but it will dominate everything in the end. There's no stopping it. But there's one thing that would help us understand this parable. It's very simple, that it starts small and then it gets big and dominates everything, larger than all the garden plants. But there's something else that would help us understand this parable. Because what happens when we read the Bible is oftentimes we come to it with a Western mindset. We don't maybe know the Old Testament as well as we should. And so we don't necessarily notice when Jesus or another biblical author is trying to get us to think of something in the Old Testament. And so, although the main point is the kingdom of heaven starts small, but it will dominate everything in the end, I want to fill that out by going back to the Old Testament. And you can turn with me if you want, or you can just listen. But I'm going to go to three Old Testament passages, and I'm, going to, I'm hoping that this will help you think like the disciples did, like the Jews. They'd be listening to this, and they'd be going, oh, I, I, know, what, I know what he's referencing here. So first... Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 31. Ezekiel chapter 31. And as you turn there, the book of Ezekiel is a book about, a lot of the book is about God's judgment. God is judging Israel for their wickedness. God is judging Israel for their sin, for their lack of loyalty to God and to his kingship. But one of the things God judges, he doesn't just judge Israel, he judges other nations as well because God has used other nations to judge Israel. Israel has gone into Babylon. They're in exile because of their sin. And then what, what does the king of Israel do? He goes over to Egypt and he asks for help. He goes over to Egypt and asks for help. And because Egypt helps Israel, God judges Egypt as well. Because God is disciplining Israel and he says, take my discipline, live in exile. This is what you've deserved. But they don't listen and they go to Egypt for help and so God judges Egypt. So listen closely to how God represents the kingdom of Egypt. I'm just going to read to you, starting in verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. 
So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plain trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. So God speaks to Egypt through his servant and says, Egypt, you're like Assyria. You're like a big cedar. You're a huge, tall tree, the the very trees that were used to build the temple. You're magnificent. Your deeps go down deep, and you're the tallest of all the trees. You're a mighty empire. You and your kingdom, you're huge. You rule over other nations. Nations live in your shade. And all the birds of the air nest in your branches. Does that sound familiar? But what does verse 10 say? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Skip down to verse 16. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who were slain by the sword. Yes, those who were its arm who lived under its shadow among the nations. So what do we see here in this passage? We see a great kingdom, a great tree. But because of their pride, because of their rebellion against God, this empire, this kingdom that all the other nations would come underneath, what happens to it? It's cut down. God cuts it down. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. It's on page 740 of your pew Bibles. Remember Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar? I always think in my mind when I'm like studying, for some reason I always write shorthand Nebi. I don't, I don't know why. King Nebi. King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream, and remember he said, somebody has to go, some, one of these men that's supposed to interpret my dreams, I know they're making things up, so I need to find someone who not only can interpret my dream supposedly, but actually can tell it to me first. And Daniel is the man. He comes, and because the Lord reveals it to him, he tells him not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. And that's earlier in Daniel, but here, because Nebuchadnezzar already knows Daniel's reputation, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel a dream that he had. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. 
At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful with its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth." Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And what's the dream? It's, it's a tree. And it's a mighty kingdom. Daniel tells us in the interpretation, it's, it's actually a mighty kingdom. And its rule is over all the earth. It's bigger than the other trees. And what do the birds do? They nest in its branches. But because Nebuchadnezzar is prideful, because he thinks that he is the one who has done this, what happens? cut down this magnificent tree that all the nations come to is cut down and the judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar is that he would crawl like a beast of the field that he'd have long nails and he'd eat grass until one day he would recognize that God is king and after all this happens to him verse 34 He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even Nebuchadnezzar, this great tree who's cut down, recognizes my kingdom. After this story, this dream, my kingdom is in it. My empire isn't it. This great tree of mine that I built, I didn't do that. Finally, turn back to Ezekiel with me to verse, chapter 17. Chapter 17. We've seen two negative examples, right? We've seen Egypt, referencing Assyria, and Babylon. Two great empires that are represented as trees that grow so large that all the birds of the air nest in their branches. And what happens to them because they are not God's kingdom? They're cut down. And in Ezekiel 16, this is actually talking about Israel. And in the first 21 verses, it's about a curse upon Israel. It's a parable, actually. The same word is used, parable, in your English. 
that Jesus is using is a parable about Babylon. That Babylon came and it took Israel and brought it into exile. And it made Israel submit to it. And the king of Israel was supposed to just obey God and suffer the consequences for his sin. But instead, he goes down to Egypt and asks for help. And because of that, God says he's going to destroy Israel. That's the bad news. But in verse 22, I just summarized the first 21 verses. In verse 22, here's a a positive picture of a tree. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, cedar referencing Israel, and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. You see, two negative pictures of these kingdoms, right? They grow exalted. They think they've done it by their own strength and might, and they're cut down. But here we see a picture that although Israel is cut down, there's a little tiny branch. It's like Israel's a cedar, and you take the little branch off the top of one of its, or a little twig off the top of one of its branches. And God says, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to put it on top of a mountain. And it's going to grow, and it's going to become a cedar. And all the birds of the air are going to nest in its shade. But this time, we don't hear anything about it being cut down. It's not cut down. It's never cut down. And so with these three passages, we can see and we can enter into the Jewish mindset. They would have been familiar with these prophecies. They would have been familiar with this way of portraying the kingdom of God or kingdoms of man. That there's these trees, there's these seemingly cosmic trees that grow over the whole world that dominate other nations, but every time that they are not the tree that God has planted, they are cut down. This is what happens to every empire of man. Although they're not mentioned in the Bible, you think of the Soviet Union, the British Empire, Rome, Greece, but they're not mentioned in these passages as trees. Even our own country, No rule can go on forever. No kingdom can persevere unless it's God's kingdom. And all of this Jesus has in mind in Matthew chapter 13. This is all in mind in Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Similar language to that little tiny twig from the top of the branch. It's something small. It's something that seems insignificant. It's not something that you think would grow to become the tallest of all the trees of the garden or the tallest of all the trees of the world. But Jesus says, this smallest of all seeds, when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that what? The birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
finally, the kingdom of God that you've been waiting for in the Old Testament is here. All these prophecies, all these empires that dominate the earth that are cut down. They weren't it. Finally, the little twig, the little top of the branch is here. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, it's here now and I'm inaugurating it. I'm bringing it to pass. The kingdom of God is near. It is in your very midst. The kingdom of heaven, again, the main point, the kingdom of heaven starts small, but it will dominate everything in the end. Nothing can stop it. That's the next parable is actually connected. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. It's the same idea. You put a little bit of leaven in the flour, even if it's a lot of flour. I, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but online it said that the, that much leaven, you could make 220-something pizzas. So it seems like a lot of flour. But you put a little bit of leaven in there, it's going to leaven the whole thing eventually. It's the same idea. This small, insignificant thing will take over and dominate the entire world. And that's the main point of this parable. That's, that's, that's everything. That's the main point. But how is the kingdom of God small and insignificant? We know that the kingdom of God seems small and insignificant, that it starts small and becomes something that dominates the entire earth. But how is it small? How is it insignificant? Well, in many different ways, but one of them is it's small and insignificant in its citizens. The citizens are small and insignificant. Do you think that this room and the people in this room, I, I love the people in this room, I know most people here, but do you think that the world leaders feel threatened by the people in this room? Do you think that the kingdoms of man are thinking, oh man, we need to shut down Sunday morning services because they're going to take over the world. No. We seem small. We seem insignificant. In fact, I'll, I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 1. What, is, what does Paul say about us as believers? Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's why. Why does God do it? Why does God work that way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're small, we're insignificant, we are not of noble birth. We are considered foolish by the world. But we are the ones who, Paul tells us later, will reign with Christ. One day, everyone in this room who's a believer, we will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ over all the earth. So the citizens of this kingdom seem small, that's true. What else? The work, the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom, it doesn't make sense to the great powers out there. Because what is the work of the kingdom? What does the king say? 
All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The work of the kingdom is to go and share the gospel. It's to make disciples. It's to tell people about a crucified Savior. It's to have awkward conversations at work and bring up, hey, you know, you really should give your life to a Jewish rabbi who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. The work doesn't seem significant. It seems so small. It seems tiny. But that's how the kingdom of God advances. Later in Matthew, when Peter is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Peter, who do you say that I am? What does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are Peter. And not talking about Peter himself or the, the papacy, but talking about that confession that he made. What does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Upon that confession that you made, people all over the world are going to say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And based on that, the kingdom of God will advance. The church will advance. And the new heavens and the new earth, when every person who will be saved is saved, will come and descend to earth. It's not flashy. It doesn't seem radical to most people out there in the world. It's ordinary. So the, the kingdom of God, it's... Starts small in its people and its work and its number, right? It started with just 12, 13 people. And now the, the way that we keep time, 2023, is based on the birth of Jesus Christ. So we do see the growth. It's not all future. We do see that it has grown. All nations, already many nations, confess that Jesus is Lord. But what I want to focus on the most is that the kingdom of, of God is small and it's insignificant seeming, especially in the king. The kingdom of God starts small and it will dominate everything in the end, but remember how small the king seemed? The Lord Jesus, born in a manger, son of a carpenter, he wasn't born to royal trumpets announcing the king has finally been born. There's a new leader. People didn't start singing God save the king all over Israel when he was born. No. What does Isaiah say? He was despised and rejected of men. He went around and spent time with the outcasts, the worst of the worst in society. He spent time with them and touched them, the untouchable. The Lord Jesus is the greatest example. But what is the real insignificance of Jesus? When did he become the most insignificant? What was the greatest, what is the greatest example of how small he became and how small this started? Well, it's that he actually became a man. Because what does the, the word of God say? It says that, Paul says in Colossians that all things were made, what? Through him and for him. Everything that was made that exists in this world from the laws of the universe and gravity and thermodynamics to every type of animal to even mathematics and science and all of those other things that are way over my head, 
All of those things were invented by Jesus Christ. He made every one of them. All of them were created through him. Every single thing was made by Jesus. He was not created. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Colossians says it was all, everything was also made for him. The reason that everything exists is for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Every single thing on this earth is designed perfectly to bring maximum glory to the Lord Jesus. Every single thing. So why did he become a man? Why did he become small? Isn't he the king and ruler of all? Doesn't he do whatever he pleases in the heavens like we heard from Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he become small? Oh, I should have done that earlier. Why did he become insignificant? Jesus didn't need to become a man just to be king over the universe. Jesus became a man for us, for his people, for his bride. The king, the story of the king that we see, we see the credentials and the mighty deeds and I guess in the disciples, his band of merry men. The king needs a bride. He needs a wife. But we were dead in sins. No one is righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says we hate God and we hate one another. That's our natural instinct. We're turned in on ourselves. Everything about our lives, even the good things that we do for other people, if we're not Christians, is to establish some kind of bragging rights before God. We are not lovely. We're not a desirable bride. But Jesus came to get us anyways. The king needs a bride. And that's why he became a man. So that he wouldn't just be king over all the earth without a kingdom, without a kingdom of people, but so that each one of us could be part of this kingdom. Jesus would do whatever it takes to get you, dear Christian, into his kingdom. Whatever. There's a, there's a quote that I thought of on the way here that I, I want to read to you, and it's, it's kind of old English, so I apologize in advance, but it's a, a Puritan, John Flavel, and he, he's talking about an imaginary conversation between God the Father and Jesus. Before the world existed, the two members of the Trinity, and they're talking about us, about you. The Father says this, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Asking Jesus. Jesus says, O oh my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills, that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after reckonings, reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. Father says. 
But my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Jesus says, content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, for so indeed it did, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus would do anything to get his bride. The king would do anything for his bride, just as most of you men would do anything for your wives. No matter what it took, Jesus would not be stopped. He became small. He became insignificant. He was born under the curse of the law, and he lived a perfect life to every last detail and was rejected by men and suffered and then went and was obedient, not just showing us how to love. He did that, yes, but was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of my favorite things as a kid was to read books about D-Day. I love D-Day. June 6, 1944, D-Day. It's not a day that we'll live in for me. That's different. But June 6th, it's the turning point in World War II. These men from all over the country. I went with my family. We went to Omaha Beach where all these Americans, and you walk through the the graveyard and you start to see names, you know, so-and-so, Carlsbad, California. Worcester, Massachusetts, Kansas, all these men that for the cause of freedom for their country, knowing that many of them would die, went and charged up that beachhead. And everything that we respect and honor about those men, it's times a thousand in the person of Christ. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he's sweet and loving and kind. But he is a hero. He is the captain of our salvation. He's the forerunner. He's the king of kings. And to get his wife, to get his bride, he would do anything, including going to the cross. And what did he do on that cross? He went and suffered all the pain and wrath that you and I deserve. Think about everything that you've done in in your life that was wrong. Think about every sin that you've committed. Because God is just, he must punish sin by no means. When God even reveals his own name, Yahweh, he says, by no means will I let the guilty go unpunished. There has to be judgment for sin. God can't just turn his back and say, it's over. There has to be punishment. And so Jesus came and became that man, and then he went to the cross. He suffered in our place. All the hell and wrath that you deserve, which you've accumulated, which I've accumulated, it's an eternity. You could never suffer at all. You could never drink that cup. Jesus took it all in himself in three hours, and he was able to do it because he's eternal. He's always existed. Only someone who who has always existed could pay an eternal debt for us. And just as when you marry a woman, you take all her debts or she takes all your debts, he is united with us in such a way that he takes all our debts upon himself and from the bounty of his love and righteousness pays them to the full so that he can say, it is finished. There's nothing left to be done. You can't add to the work. There's no other heroes left in the story. So the greatest example 
of the insignificance of the kingdom, of how small it starts, is the Lord Jesus. He's the king. He's the creator, and yet he became a man. He became small and despised and rejected for us. But already we see, all over the world, people confessing that Jesus is Lord. We see a beginning of that. We see all nations, all the birds of the air are starting to nest in the shade of the branches of the mustard tree. It's already starting. I don't know how many nations there are left that need to hear the gospel, but it's, it's, it's happening. We're nearing the end. The, the testimony of, of the New Testament and Scripture is there's this imminent return. We should always be ready. It could be just around the corner. And then the new heavens and the new earth will, will one day come down to earth and we will reign with him as his bride, as his people. We're, we're engaged, and in a sense we are married, but there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will walk down the aisle to our great husband. I always look, I'll close with this. Somebody told me this, so I'm stealing this from somebody, but I always do it. I always look at the, the man whenever I'm at a wedding. Everyone's turned around. I usually, if you can see, but because everyone, everyone's turned around looking at the bride. But I always look at the husband. And I, I see the look in his eyes. I think, the Lord Jesus designed this institution of marriage to picture his love for us. He's, he's looking at us, waiting for us to come down the aisle, and we're behind the doors right now. We're about to come out any time. And some of our dear saints who passed away this week are already with him, seeing his face. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but it will dominate everything in the end. Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read this and we'll close with this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it guides us and directs us, that it refreshes our hearts and our souls when we're weary of life. When we look at the world around us and it seems that your causes are being defeated. It seems hopeless. It seems that we can't overcome. Father, please convince us. Convince us that your kingdom is coming, that the kingdom of God starts small, but it will dominate everything on this earth. It cannot be stopped. As you said to Peter, you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Heaven doesn't have the gates. Heaven isn't on the defense. Hell is on the defense. Satan, flesh, the flesh and the devil, they are on the defense. And the kingdom of God and the king and his army are marching towards that final haven of rebellion even now. 
And so please help us with the eye of faith to rejoice, to have peace, to know everything's going according to plan. This is all working out that the kingdoms of man will always be cut down. There's only one everlasting dominion. There's only one everlasting kingdom. And because your son Jesus died, and importantly, because he rose again, we can know that through his resurrection we have hope. Thank you for this word. Help us to be bold and confident and not afraid. In Jesus' name.